This is the Interchange Recharge, a Wood McKenzie production. I'm David Banmiller. Staggering, unnerving, mind-boggling, absolutely gobsmackingly bananas. Those are the words Dr. Zeke, housefather, used to describe the climate data he analyzed in a recent piece for the New York Times. It was another year of record temperatures. Data from Berkeley Earth showed September almost a full degree Fahrenheit hotter than the previous record. 2023 is likely to be the hottest year since records began over 150 years ago. Where have we heard that one before? It's against this backdrop of a rapidly changing climate that we focus today on the importance of climate modeling for renewables. Solar and wind still lead the way when it comes to renewable energy investment. Efficient use of these renewables is linked to the ability to anticipate and plan for the variability in supply and demand. Traditionally, historical data has been the primary tool for predicting future weather events and their impact on supply, demand, and balances. Historical data, though, has its limits. Climate change and the limited quantity of available historical data is reducing the accuracy of weather predictions and, in turn, demand and supply implications for wind and solar. Scenario is a startup that says they have a solution. Rob Serencione is founder and CEO of Scenario. If you're a vertical utility and you're responsible for serving your customers' demand hour by hour for the whole year for a planning period, you need to ensure that you have enough generation to, to meet that demand under all types of future conditions, under all weather scenarios. Scenario leverages historical data and actionable climate modeling to explore, understand, and even attempt to predict the implications of weather patterns on renewable energy. These insights are crucial for various segments of the energy industry, from traders to asset developers, utilities, and investors. But while advancements in technology might improve the efficiency of solar panels or other renewable sources, no technology can alter the weather. Continued and improved climate modeling to understand and adapt to changing weather patterns will always be essential for renewable energy. So Rob, welcome to the show. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about your career in energy, how and why you started Scenario. I became a software startup founder after a long career as uh, an energy trader. And what you quickly learn doing that is that almost everything that drives supply, demand, variability in energy is weather. Weather's always been the, you know, the primary driver of heating and cooling demand, but increasingly it's the primary driver of uh, supply side variability as we add you know, wind, solar, and, and, and renewables. If you look at sort of the tools and the, and the data and the, and the analytics that we use to figure out what sort of ranges, outcomes, events we should expect in, in terms of that weather-driven variability, there's not a ton of, of information out there. So essentially, in the short term, you've got two weeks of a weather forecast. Basically, it. you really don't have skillful weather models beyond two weeks. You know, as a trader, as a business, as a, as a big energy company, you certainly have risk beyond two weeks, right? You want to know what's going to happen next month, next season, next year, and beyond. And so what do you do? You use historical data. You look back and you say, let's use history sort of as a, as a proxy for the, you know, the range of, of weather events and therefore kind of, you know, supply demand 
on balances that, that can happen in the future. And what I observed kind of anecdotally over my career is that that doesn't work too great. It doesn't work all the time. And, you know, annoyingly, you, you consistently kind of see whether realize, whether events materialize outside of your kind of, you know, historical range of, of outcomes. And so that was really the, the gap and the reason that, that I started this company is that I wanted to build a solution to that problem, a forward-looking solution to the problem of, you know, anticipating weather and climate variability for energy applications. Yeah, it's a scenario provides actionable climate modeling. And, and you mentioned the, the trading side of it. But what about longer term? What is Scenario doing to help beyond just kind of the traders, but the industry in general? You know, whether you're a, you're a trader and you're trying to predict where, where prices are going to go, or you are a asset developer, so you're, you know, building utility scale solar, utility scale wind, even if you own conventional generation, you are making commercial decisions, you know, that have the same, same kind of need with respect to understanding how is weather going to affect either my production if I'm a um, you know renewable energy asset owner how's it going to affect supply demand sort of balances in a, in a region I operate in which is going to have an impact on prices it's going to affect reliability so if you're a utility if you're a vertical utility and you're responsible for serving your your customers demand you know hour by hour for you know the whole year for a planning period you need to ensure that you have enough generation to, to meet that demand under all types of, of, of future conditions that are all weather scenarios. And so Scenario provides analytics that allows all these types of, of customer segments to do investment analysis, so valuation, reliability studies, resource adequacy, planning, all, all these kind of things that are generally like longer term exercises with five-year, 10-year, 15-year kind of time horizons. And so what's being done currently? I mean, if, if people that are making investment decisions, and, and let's go specifically kind of to solar, maybe utility scale, scale solar, um, what kind of models are they using right now to predict future performance and returns? They use history. So, that, so they got two main, there's, there's two main methods, right? One is a very particular kind of historical average. It's called a typical meteorological year. And what that is, there's, there's different flavors of it, but basically you stitch together 12 median-ish months from history. So you take you know, January 1980, February 1976, March 1999, and you put them all together and you make this one, they call it 8760, there's 8,760 hours a year, one 8760 kind of average-ish or median-ish uh, year, and that's called a, a TMY. And that's sort of the workhorse for the industry. That method and that file right there, the original method was, was developed in um, about 1980 and it hasn't really changed since. And so most of the solar industry, most investment kind of pre-construction, you know, investment diligence and guidance, a lot of it rests on, on that analysis right there. They augment it with sort of a time series analysis, again, of history. So all backward looking data, we look back at the, you know, sort of irradiance and temperature data that, that we have from history. And we calculate, you know, kind of the median production estimate from that and maybe the 90th percentile and the 10th percentile. And that's what they use to predict the forward-looking generation profile of, of new projects. And so what, in your opinion, what are some of the factors that, that they're getting wrong by using historical data that could impact what the future really looks like. So there's there's two big assumptions when when you 
you kind of use these these approaches when, when you're using historical data, right? The first is that the climate that produced clouds and irradiance and, and temperature 30 years ago is the same as the climate that we have today or in, in 15 years. And I think we're, you know, we're increasingly realizing that that's not the case. Climate is changing. And so, you know, this is kind of the elephant in, in the room, not just, you know, I observed as a trader, but, you know, that we hear from, from all different parts of, of the industry. And this, this isn't unique. You know, it's not unique to trading. It's not unique to renewables. It's not even probably unique to, to the industry. Any industry that probably has weather and climate risk does the same thing. We use historical data. But it, it rests on that kind of flawed assumption that, that climate isn't changing when we know that it is. So that's, that's the first problem. And then the second problem is something that I always kind of had a, you know, a gut instinct for, but you know, didn't really know why. And we, can, we kind of understand better now. But it's just that we, we don't have enough historical data to sort of accurately quantify risk, like extreme events, right? You want to know, you know, everything that's interesting in, in energy happens in the tails, right? Extreme weather events, extreme, you know, kind of grid events, scarcity events, reliability events, like those are going to drive like so many of your outcomes. And, you know, usually when you do these kind of historical weather analyses, you've got 30 years of data, something like that. And we hear this all the time from people in the industry, like, oh, you know, I've got 30 years of data, so, you know, I'm good. And it's not enough. It's not enough, especially when you start thinking about, you know, I don't just care about irradiance. I care about irradiance and temperature. Oh, I care about irradiance and temperature. Well, and, and wind speed, because I own wind farms as well. And all of these, you sort of care about a combination of weather events. And so we have a small sample of data from history where the climate's changing. Those are the biggest problems with, with sort of those methods. And my understanding is the climate trends currently forecasting lower irradiance uh, going forward, which obviously is going to impact the performance and the returns from the solar standpoint. So it, it depends. When we've looked at this, there are areas of the country that have material and, and significantly negative trends in, in irradiance. There are also areas that seem to have positive trends. There's a lot of the country where it's kind of offsetting and there, and there doesn't appear to be a direction. I think broadly what we've found is that there is um, a slight negative trend over time, but there's a lot of different factors going on. And, and one of the reasons that, that solar is kind of a unique case to, to look at in terms of trend is that we don't have a ton of historical data because the, so the highest quality historical data is, is based on um, uh, satellite information, basically pictures of clouds. And we only have high quality satellite data since uh, starting in 1998. So you got 25 years of historical data in, for irradiance, so that's not great. And then the climate models don't do a good job of resolving, sort of, sort of modeling clouds. So we don't get a ton of good information from, you know, kind of the, the science models. We don't have a, a ton of backward looking data. So, you know, it is, you know, it's, I think it's very important and, and timely. And we're very interested in, in, in measuring and, and observing these trends. And we found certainly in some regions, Midwest, Deep South Florida, um, it seems like there are, are definitely significantly negative uh, uh, trends in irradiance. But it's something we need to continually kind of understand and, and monitor. I mean, if I'm an investor, a project manager looking at a high dollar solar project, right? I mean, this type of, of analysis is going to be critical to my decision making because it's really going to impact my returns, the performance of, of the project uh, going forward. Yeah. And, and so, and if you're the, you're the owner of the project, 
your returns are magnified because you finance the project with debt, right? So it's, it's just like buying a house with a mortgage. You know, it's the project sponsors, it's the equity owners in renewable projects who really bear the brunt of the risk in terms of production underperformance. And that's something that in solar has kind of been, you know, kind of endemic or chronic. There's this problem of, I estimate my production here and my operational plants are producing less than my estimates over time. And, you know, the industry has, has looked at this problem intensely over, over the past couple of years. A lot of what they've looked at are sort of mechanical reasons for this. Like, you know, oh, we didn't model the inverters failing at the right rate, or we didn't model the fact that, you know, you got to clean the panels because they get dirty. But there's another thing going on, which is that if you're in an area that's getting cloudier little by little over time because of some sort of, you know, climate um, trends and climate change interactions, then that's going to eat away at your return steadily over time. It could make your, your downside risk, you know, your one in 10 year, your, your, your kind of 10th percentile outcomes much, much worse. And you really, really feel that. So, so yeah, you're right. So for an investor, for an owner, really, of these, of these projects, it can be a really big deal. And when you're looking at the climate models, I mean, what are the other things that you're looking at? I mean, how are you coming up with your analysis and forecasts? So the technology that, that we landed on is a statistical climate model. If you think about what I was talking about at the beginning of saying like, oh, you know, we just use history. It's not a big enough sample. It doesn't account for climate change. Well, one solution to that would be, okay, I want a forward-looking view of, of weather risk. It would be nice if I could, you know, use the, the climate models like that NOAA maintains, these, these global circulation models. It'd be cool if those were available to me and I could just pick one of those up and it would forecast, you know, many outcomes of, of weather at very specific locations. Because in renewables and in energy, we care about weather like, you know, right where a solar farm is, right where a wind farm is. But unfortunately, the, the kind of physics-based climate models don't, don't work that way. So they generally store data at pretty large regional scales, and they, they often don't store data at hourly levels. We care about at least hourly analysis in, in energy. So that method doesn't work. So instead, what we have is this statistical approach to climate modeling, where we are learning probability distribution shapes, correlations, patterns from the historical archive. And we're accounting for trends. We're incorporating trend and trend uncertainty into, uh, into the future. And then we're essentially sampling many, many times to create many realistic paths of weather. In fact, you know, weather patterns that are possible, but you may not have seen in your, in your 30 years of data. It allows you to much more accurately understand the risk, the risk of, you know, certain irradiance levels, the risk of production, you know, what's your 10th percentile case, what's your, you know, one in a hundred case. And so that, that's what we're, we're actually doing when we, we work with customers and when we, when we conduct, you know, production risk assessments for, for renewables. When you choose Wood McKenzie, you choose a true partner who brings innovation and clarity along with independent business intelligence. Our global solutions provide you the data, research, and analytics that you need to capitalize on the energy transition. We've provided energy intelligence for 50 years and over the last decade, significantly scaled our power and renewables capabilities. Yet the energy transition is the biggest change we have ever seen. Market evolutions and technology revolutions have disrupted legacy business models, creating a new energy landscape. Electricity will be the dominant fuel source of the 21st century. Navigate the energy markets across policy, 
regulations, and technology with Wood McKenzie. Speak to us today about how our experts can help you thrive in the fast-changing power industry as we work together to transform the way we power our planet. I mean, this is pretty important, actionable information uh, to put with people when, from a decision-making standpoint. And, I mean, you could create a kind of a bid-ask spread more on the M&A environment when somebody may be using historical data, uh, historical modeling versus, versus yours, which is you know, a little bit more accurate. I, I think that's a great point. There's, there's an, I have a, a number of thoughts on that. So like, first, you know, we hope, I, I, it would be sort of our, our goal years from now that there isn't a bid-ask spread and that we can kind of, because that, that's one of the thoughts I had when I started building the company. Like, should we really argue about, you know, what's the probability of it being, you know, 90 degrees and, you know, 50% cloudy at a certain location, you know, on a given day or hour of the year? Like, should, shouldn't we know enough to be able to kind kind of answer that, we sh- we shouldn't really argue about that. So it would be nice if kind of the methods that we're using and the, and the analytics were seen as kind of ground truth. But I think I think secondly, you're right. I think we're very much in we're not there yet. And some of the conversations and and some of the reasons for for companies working with us have to do with getting ahead of these issues. For example, getting ahead of where they might own you know renewables in areas where the renewable resource is declining because they kind of have a gut instinct. You know, we've talked to, um, you know, solar owners and wind owners who have said this and said, hmm, you know, started to notice, you know, may- maybe a, a trend or something in certain areas of my, my portfolio. Well, what could you do with that? Well, obviously, you, know, you, can't, you can't make it windier or sunnier where you, you know, where you own a particular project. You can sell it to the next guy, right, who may not have as much information. So, so I, yeah, I think you're, you're spot on. And so I was looking at the study that, that you referred to earlier that you guys were doing. And, and one of the things that, that stuck out was, you know, based on the irradiance, you said some areas are projected lower versus, and some of it are higher. But on average, kind of across all the sites that you looked in your study, that the production gap was about 2% right now. And it increases, you know, 5 to 5% by 2034, 2035, which at that point, you know, you've got a shortfall of about 300 million megawatts from solar production. So around there, and I guess, I mean, my question, I mean, is we're looking at these pretty aggressive goals for renewable energy and, and zero carbon footprint. I mean, it just seems like that's a big gap. And this is something that we have to get right on the front end to make sure that we're not falling consistently and even more so behind. Yes. Yeah, so, so you mentioned like renewable production goals, policy goals, net, you know, net zero goals. And that, that's the flip side to what we're um, observing right now in the industry with production and financial underperformance, right? You have, you have companies who are hurting because they're getting less revenue than, than their projections. And that, that's what they kind of feel right now. But you're right. If we're, if we're expecting, if we, if we need, like, you know, DOE says a thousand gigawatts of, of solar in 2035, but we only wind up, you know, essentially building effectively, you know, 900, then you're quite short by that point. So it affects, you know, not only the, the companies that own these assets and, and earn less, but it affects our ability to hit policy goals as well. Yeah. So, I mean, having this information up front to make the informed decisions and also appropriate forecasts to where we need to be to help accelerate any areas that need acceleration to meet those goals. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously we've talked about, about solar. Uh, what other types of renewable energy is your modeling able to 
able to forecast? So we, we focus on solar and wind. We do load as well. So like we said, for a utility that, that's conducting a you know, long-range plan, a reliability plan, a resource adequacy plan, we handle all of that. And wind is the next topic that we're going to be publishing research on, on soon. It's, it's another area where we observe, in the wind case, you know, large regions of the country, large regions of North America, where the wind resource is significantly declining. And some of that overlaps with, you know, with areas where we've already built and invested and will, will build a lot of um, utility-scale wind. And so we're going through right now the exercise of understanding, you know, measuring these trends and uncertainties, thinking about, you know, how that propagates, you know, forward um, over the next 10, you know, 15 years. And then specifically, I think the more interesting part with, with, with that is, you know, translating that into uh, wind energy. So, you know, applying, um, you know, wake loss models and, and models that, that transform, you know, hub height wind speed to utility scale wind production and understanding, okay, if we see the wind resource declining by, you know, 0.1 meters per second, what does that mean in terms of uh, wind capacity factors? So we don't have that out yet, but we, we will soon. Um, I think it's going to be pretty interesting. For sure. And so your analysis and, and the studies that you're working on right now and, and, and looking at those models, are, are you focused mainly on the U.S.? And if so, are you looking at going, you know, beyond from a global standpoint? Yeah, so um, so we started the business focusing on on mostly the U.S. Um, so we also work um, kind of southern Canada. That was sort of deliberate, both from a, a data perspective and like a go-to-markets perspective. Kind of wanted to keep the universe, you know, manageable. We're a small team, but certainly all the methods and the you know the analytics that we're we're doing extend globally. So certainly expect to grow the company beyond just the U.S. and North America. And looking forward at the two big pieces for renewable energy and, and the energy transition, wind and solar, where do you see those markets in 10 years? Bigger than they are today. I mean, certainly there's, there's a ton of investment um, going in. I think, um, you know, the, the really difficult questions to, to solve are kind of more on the policy side. Like, there's certainly enough land and enough resource to build a ton of utility scale wind and solar. But, you know, increasingly large transmission projects face very big hurdles. So I think the path from here to 10 years from now, I think is going to have to answer a lot of questions around, you know, how does transmis- tra- transmission get built? How does interconnection work to enable all of these big projects that we, we could build? There, there's nothing preventing us from, from building them except figuring out, you know, where do you put them? How do you hook them up? I think those are the more kind of difficult uh, questions to answer. Yeah, the interconnection issue is is, is a big one because uh, it also varies by geography uh, as well. So there's challenges. It's not going to be a one-size-fits-all solution to help alleviate some of those backlogs. It's going to be have it's going to have to be addressed at the at the geographic level. Yeah, and it, if you look at where we've built most of this, right, like California and Texas, and California did it with you know kind of policy and and mandates, and Texas did it with like a no rules approach to build whatever you want. And I think, um, you know, a lot of the country is kind of in between those two kind of uh, approaches. So yeah, it's, it's certainly going to be interesting to see how that works out. Yeah, Rob, that's how we roll in, in Texas. You know, you, you, you do what you want. <laughs> well, at this point, when you talk, when you talk to the IBBs, you talk to the developers, I mean, it's, it's very, very apparent. Like they, they say it all the time, you know, they're just like, 
Texas is easy. Like, why do we build? Why do we build in Texas? Because it's easy. Um, and you know, you get these reactions like, yeah, I know I could, you know, I could, I could build this thing in in Indiana, but it's gonna be, it's gonna take me two extra years, and it's gonna cost me this much more. And yeah, it's it's interesting. It also will be interesting to see how your forecasts change year over year, because obviously we're talking about about climate trends and, and climate change impacting what you're looking at going forward versus the the historical uh, methods. And as we make more progress to the energy transition, uh, more renewable sourced energy is being built, maybe that positively impacts you know some of what you're looking out 20, 30 years now. Maybe in 10 years, that looks a lot better based on people being able to make more informed decisions and us making more progress towards the climate goals that we have. Maybe. I think it's going to, I think there, there's probably a lot of inertia. I don't necessarily think what we're doing, I, I certainly don't think we're going to notice a big change, you know, next year in, in the next five years. I do think that if I'm, if I'm sitting in the seat, you know, 30 or 40 years from now, that could be a, a different situation. But yeah, it's a, it's a point well taken. Curious, can you hear that it started raining here? Only just now that you mentioned it. <laughs> you know what? I'm jealous. I have not had any rain here in Texas. I think April was the last time I, I remembered rain. And that's, that's being serious. Yeah, that, that's kind of the other, working as a trader, you know, a lot of it is like analytics and um, modeling and, and math, trying to understand, you know, risks, probabilities, but, but a lot of it is also psychology. And so, you know, I kind of smiled and chuckled when you said, like, I can't remember it being that, you know, this hot. One of the motivations for doing this kind of work is that we are so bad as people kind of, you know, remembering what actually happened. We have a very strong, they call it like a recency bias. Like what happened yesterday is what's going to happen tomorrow. But when you're trading, you need to be like, you know, totally unbiased and just look at the data and, and the information. You know, 2011, ERCOT melted down in the summer. I don't know if you were there in the state, but there were big problems. I don't know if they had brownouts. I do remember that. I do remember that from 2011. I just remember 2006, it was an extended summer because we were at Halloween and I was outside with the kids and it was about 95 degrees with mosquitoes everywhere. And I mean, that's on Halloween. And, and I have not had another Halloween like that since, but I keep looking at this summer and the way it is. And I'm, and I'm wondering, is this going to be one of those extended summers that all of a sudden you're in you're at Christmas and you're still 85 degrees and then you get about two weeks of winter and then you go back. Yeah, that is that is brutal. I couldn't I couldn't imagine that. You know, we've talked about the project developers, investment investment companies, or investors, and and obviously traders. But w where else can this type of analysis be applicable? Do you think? I mean, I just just the climate forecasts in general, beyond just kind of thinking about how they impact wind and solar. Where else do you think this data would be helpful? that could be actionable on, on people that need a little bit more precise and not looking back 15, 25 years? It's, it's the reliability side. That, that's what it is. It's the going back to that second sort of customer lane. Um, it's the utility, what they call resource adequacy studies. So these are the 10-year, 15-year, 20-year plans that utilities and um, even that the ISOs do to understand whether or not they're going to have enough generation to meet demand. And these still are done today. You can read these. These are for a you know utility. They they have to present them to the the regulators, like the Public Service Commission in your state, or you know the ISOs make theirs publicly available online. And those are all done the same way. You can read them, and they say we used this 20 years of you know temperature data, and we used 15 years of 
solar profiles, they'll call them. And often now, I've seen, a, I've seen a couple that actually have asterisks and say, you know, we explicitly did not include the effects of climate change in this analysis. We'll say that right there. And so, and the industry recognizes this. Like we're actually, we're, we're part of a industry research working group that's working on developing new, new methods and, and new approaches to these kind of, uh, you know, reliability studies. So at a certain point, you know, there's a certain quarter of the industry that recognizes like this is an issue, it, it's coming. We're kind of a little bit, you know, ahead of that, being a little louder about, hey, we've got a, a viable solution now. Let us start showing you the difference between using a climate change aware, really broad set of, um, uh, of future weather data versus just using a small sample of history. Let us show you the difference in, in, in terms of what you project for your grid balances, your generation shortfalls, your reliability metrics, because um, it, it can be pretty, pretty different. And as technology improves, maybe the efficiency of solar panels uh, gets better. I mean, as they're running their forecast models, they can look at, at your model and take that forecast to, as what they see as technological advancements on the performance of their, of their solar panels and, and really come up with a much more accurate forecast and, and return analysis. Yeah, of course. So everything, you know, we, we do a couple different layers of the analysis. We, we, do the, we do the climate modeling. We also do the, um, uh, the energy modeling where we, you know, we transform weather to, to energy, um, kind of like you're talking about. But that can all be, you know, adjusted and, and, and improved as, as technology changes and, and improves. So I think the key for us is that it, it should be done, you know, all of that should be built on just a much more robust kind of analytical foundation. Well, Rob, listen, I, I really appreciate you joining us. Really a timely topic. I was really interested when I was looking through the, the study that, that we referenced earlier because it was something that I hadn't even thought of, but it really can impact people's views on the energy transition and, and investments and, and where to move forward. Do you know, like we, so, so this study had, you know, got a lot of interest, but what's been really, I think, interesting to us hearing some of the feedback is, you know, sort of the acknowledgement from a lot of people in industry that like, yes, we, we've, we've thought about this. We've, we've known this should be looked into. We know, you know, we understand this is an issue that should be addressed. And they, and they have it. And I can understand why. There's, there's lots of different reasons why. There's lots of inertia in, you know, big companies and, and, and big industries. But it's been really interesting. Like nobody, everybody has sort of the same reaction. Like, oh yeah, okay, we've, <laughs> here it is. But like I said, you know, the solar thing is hard because you don't have a great signal from the climate models because they don't do clouds, you know, well. And there's other things going on. There's wildfires. There's particulates. So we're tired on the, the positive side, coal plants. Coal plants emit, you know, particulates that, you know, make the air cloudier. And we're retiring those. So, so that, that's actually a positive. We should, in a lot, of, a lot of the country where we're retiring coal, things should, you know, there should be a, that, that influence should be making, making things sunnier. Or, or you know clearer and so so yeah there's a number of things moving around um, we don't have great signals and i think what we're saying is just like we need to start we, we need to start analyzing we need to start measuring this and we need to start doing the math in terms of what this means for production down the road yeah so it's it's been it's been pretty interesting having these conversations yeah, yeah i looked at it so that yep that that all makes that all makes sense but thanks again really appreciate the time yeah of course we'll send you the wind one too yeah, I look forward to seeing it. Maybe we'll have you on to discuss that uh, once it comes out with some yeah. interesting takeaways. I'm David Bam Miller, and this is The Interchange Recharged, out every second Friday at 7 a.m. Eastern Time. If you haven't already, 
Check out our sister podcast, The Energy Gang. It's a bi-weekly look at the biggest and most important stories in energy. Hosted by Ed Crooks, with regular guests Dr. Melissa Lott from Columbia University's Center on Global Energy Policy, and Amy Myers-Jaffe of NYU's Energy, Climate Justice, and Sustainability Lab, plus a roster of analysts, commentators, and industry leaders, it's everything you need to know in one place. So next Friday, from 7 a.m. Eastern Time, join the Energy Gang conversation, and we'll see you in a couple weeks.